0: I got a call from somebody in the stage school saying, hey, do you want to do something for Pokemon? And I was thrilled. I was like, oh my God, amazing. Because I I had never been asked to do anything. I had never gotten a part in anything at this stage. Mm. So it was kind of my first, the first thing for me. And I loved Pokemon. I was was obsessed with it. So um, I went along and they ended up putting me in this big, huge costume. Like, it was an adult-sized Pikachu costume. And um, <laughs> my dad said the other day, he remembers watching me, and he just felt so bad for me because I was struggling <laughs> to to stay standing. And I was kind of wobbling, is he going to fall? Is he going to fall? Whoa! You know, like, to each side, left and right. And uh, yeah. then when I eventually, like, walked in the parade, when the parade was over, I took it off. My dad helped me, and I was sweating like as if I had jumped into a swimming pool. It was quite tough, you know. But um but I, I but you know, I was I was chuffed to be asked to
1: do it next week on irishman abroad i'm joined by everybody's favorite on-site reporter richard chambers as he gives me the extended and inside look behind the scenes of the government entrusted with handling ireland's COVID reaction you don't want to miss it the only way to hear the whole thing is at patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad Well what an episode we have for you today with Steve Garrigan the lead singer with the massively successful Irish rock band Codeline He makes his living standing up in front of thousands of people all over the world but little did we know that behind closed doors he was privately struggling with his own demons You're going to hear the whole story here and over on Patreon, again, you'll get an extended cut of this episode, including uh, how he retreated into music during this time to write some of the best Codaline songs, how uh, writing the book was such a wrench for him. This book that he has out is called High Hopes, named after, of course, the brilliant Codaline song. But we talk a lot over there about Eurostar, Star, the TV show that first discovered the man, and that brief flash of fame, that 15 minutes that caused him to have to repeat his leaving search and how that impacted upon him. We talk about the power of the internal monologue over there and how he finds no to be a really empowering word. I love this chat. Uh, You're going to get to hear the first half of it here on iTunes and SoundCloud, but I'd love you to come over and get access to the full thing on patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. Patrons get Three episodes a week with Sonia Sullivan on a Tuesday, Marion McKeown in America on a Friday, and of course, our big interviews every Sunday. The book is called High Hopes, Making Music, Losing My Way and Learning to Live, and it is in stores now, published by Hachette Ireland.
0: That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme, what's the big
1: idea? Well, they have going to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works.
0: I moved over here, and immediately I had to
1: up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had
0: an Irish upbringing.
1: Twenty years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, Steve Garrigan, it's brilliant to have you on The Irishman Abroad, especially with this book out. And, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to get kind of an advanced read of it, as is often the case here. And, you know, I remember you being somebody that I would just would never think that you'd write, you know, a memoir that like you seemed like such a private person that I'd imagine that half the struggle of actually sitting down to write this book, never mind finding the time, was kind of going, "Okay, I am going to tell people this stuff. And then each step of the way going, am I really going to tell people this stuff?
0: Yeah, I think you've you got that exactly right. It was a constant uh, battle with myself, I suppose, when I was writing it. And uh, it's it's not something I ever thought I'd do because I'm still, I, I'm still quite young as well. But the main reason I did it was kind of to just talk about uh, anxiety, mainly my my kind of issues with anxiety and panic attacks. That was the main reason. But um, I suppose it talks about songwriting and Codeline and touring and growing up and my love for music. But but the main reason for me was kind of to speak about anxiety and the hope that people out there dealing with similar things could relate to it. So. So yeah.
1: I mean obviously that conversation is much more open than it was. And on this podcast and another project that I'm doing with Irish Life it's being destigmatized every single day. What did you think that telling your story would may would be different what would it add to this? Like it's obviously a different perspective but what did you have in mind that way when you say that the main reason for writing it was this? Well, I have
0: a lot of friends who have had similar issues and they don't really talk about it. I think it's an Irish thing, you know, with Irish men in uh, particular. Like and when I was growing up, there was no talk about anxiety or mental health. It's only in kind of recent years that it's people have started to kind of talk about it and the stigma has been reduced massively. But I I still feel like there is this kind of Irish man mentality where it's kind of like suck it up and don't talk about your feelings, you know? Mm, I still think it's still there, yeah. I I do, yeah. Well, I I do, yeah. With a lot of people my age, I'm I'm 33. But yeah, I felt like another reason why I did it as well is because I don't think people would expect a frontman in a band to like travels around the world and like plays to big crowds to experience issues with anxiety, particularly like panic attacks and, and social anxiety, you know, because mm. what I what I do is I go out on a stage and sing to thousands of people. But yet when I come off stage, I'm super quiet and introverted. And uh, so I talk to <laughs> Yeah. I
1: yeah and, and I do think that that definitely the initial shock is how is this possible? Like. This is this is a, you know, uh, Brandon Flowers Bono positioned person who obviously loves attention <laughs> uh, while on stage, but doesn't off. Uh, I talked to Ashley B about similar kind of stuff recently, and she talked about having l- high confidence and low self-esteem, which is something that I think a lot of comedians have where it's like, yeah, I'm confident I can make this room laugh. But my opinion of myself comes down to whether they laugh or not. And the juxtaposition of those two things can leave comedians being the way they tend to be, which is not super funny off stage. <laughs> <And> <laughs> yet the life and soul of the party when they're up there. Does that at all chime with what you went through before we even get in, into you know, kind of the early stuff where the seeds are sown.
0: Yeah, well, I was very, very hard on myself and I, my self-esteem was very, very low. I've gone through therapy for years and I've kind of got a handle on it. And I'm in a lot, I'm in a much better place now. But I, I was saying things to myself, like beating myself up constantly. Even if a show was amazing, I'd come off stage and I pick the smallest thing that went wrong and focus on that and then I'd kind of be beating myself up. So yeah, I my my kind of self-esteem was low, but it was down it was down to me just arguing with myself if that makes any sense. Like just yeah, constantly kind of uh beating myself up. Well, <laughs> oh,
1: look, I don't think there's an Irish person alive that won't uh relate to that because there's just this internal critic that seems to run in all of our heads saying who do you think you are? on some level, but also going, that was shite, (laughs) even though everyone's clapping. I mean, and it's funny, I can relate it to comedy because sometimes you can be up there killing, but thinking to yourself, what do these fuckers know? (laughs) 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 Which is bizarre. It's like it's not even good enough to have a good gig, but that internal voice can be so strong. Now, I relate my own one back to, I think, a hypercritical environment in my youth where Mm. I'm really conscious of this now with my own son, where we don't watch uh, Strictly Come Dancing or X Factor or any show where we're watching creativity be pulled down or picked at. Because the celebration of the effort is what it's about for me. And that if he's got that in his system too early, then he's afraid to try. You yeah, that's must, very good. You, but you must go back because in the book, you talk about eight years old winning this Casio watch on stage, singing the Bee Gees and closing your eyes in that moment and singing, becoming lost in it. But that voice was still there, like early, early doors. Have you ever been able to unlock where it came from and whether that hyper within yourself was modeled on something else you were seeing around you? Well, look,
0: I've, I've gone to psychotherapy and I've gone through the talks with, with a therapist like, you know, what was your mother like? What was your father like? What was your family like growing up as a kid? And I genuinely don't think there is anything. I, I, I'm I, shy by nature, like I'm quite introverted, you know, and I've always been overly hard on myself, but I could never actually find out where it came from. Mm. I've kind of accepted it
1: as part of who I am, if that makes sense. Sure. I guess I'm asking the question because a child isn't born being critical of themselves somewhere along the way. Whether we can pinpoint where it was, some part of you started to think that the things you did weren't good enough. Now, I sometimes think that when I've become creatively stifled, it can be because I've elevated those that are good at this thing. To such a level that they become kind of unreachable and that whatever I do is just bollocks compared to it. Uh, and that is obviously counter creative stuff. And sometimes growing up in, a, in an environment of brothers and sisters, which you did, of course, you kind of mm-hmm. would you describe yourself as a middle child? Well, look that
0: <laughs> that could have something to do with it. Uh, middle child syndrome, you know, um, and kind of competition between myself, mm. my brother, and my sisters. You know, if if there was anything to cause it, maybe that would be it. But yeah. As far they, they, but as far back as lovely like,
1: people. But I, I yeah I think yeah the competitiveness is just to win your parents' favor, is it not? But yeah, yeah, that would make sense. Yeah.
0: I suppose like from a very, very early age, when I first stepped up on a stage, I got a good reaction and people clapped. And my parents, I remember my parents there and they clapped and they were really behind it and supported it. So it was always something that I felt confident about and something I kind of felt I was good at. So I could always fall back into music. Like if I didn't get a good reaction when I first stood up on stage, I was eight years old. I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today because I would have thought that I wasn't good because I didn't get a good reaction. Mm. But fortunately, I did. I mean, I was terrible, like <laughs> at that age. I mean, I, I don't think I could hold a note, but, um, <laughs> but I got a good reaction. And that kind of sent me down a path of music, you know.
1: But I know what you mean. that. Like, I remember hearing Jonah Hill talk about how he got a compliment in an acting class and when he wanted to be a director the whole time. He always wanted to direct films, but he got a compliment early in an acting class. And he said it sent him off down this road of trying to be an actor just based on that bit of encouragement that he, he was so desperate to find. So this got put in the category for you of things I'm good at. Right, This is it. <laughs> you, you are called the singer. You're the singer in school. There's yeah. a show and tell on a Friday, you detail it beautifully in the book. Where everybody gets up and does their, their party piece on a Friday and <laughs> Steve will jump up and sing a Bee Gees tune or When the Going Gets Tough is one that I was just like, I've got to hear your version of that oh, as a tiny dear. little boy. must have been the most adorable thing that the teacher had ever seen at that point in their life. <laughs> but I, I, I mean, Jigsaw.ie are our chosen charity partner here on the podcast, and they're all about equipping young people with the mental health skills they'll need in life, which I just think is such a brilliant mission. But it always makes me think, how different would my life be if I got that help early on? Would I even be doing comedy? Do you think, Steve, that you could have been helped with this awful negative internal monologue that eventually produces the anxiety attack at 19. Could you have been reached or helped much earlier on?
0: Absolutely. There there was no uh, resources in the school. Uh, I I was kind of, at the same time, I don't know, I was a little bit oblivious to it. But I suppose if there was a class or even like a a talk about it, mm. um, I would have been more aware of it. And I probably would have put two and two together and figured out what I was going through or what what, I, what was happening to me. So it's really, really great and refreshing to hear of charities like uh, Jigsaw. And uh, I, I mean, even in schools today, there are a lot of resources for uh, to promote mental health for kids. And it's, it's amazing.
1: Do you ever think what you would go back if you could Marty McFly it back there and you know, put your hand <laughs> on the shoulder of young Steve, what, what would you say? I
0: would say, t- t- don't be so hard on yourself, you are good enough. Because I think, uh, like, I, uh, my self-esteem was very, very low. I was very unsure of myself. I had a lot of doubts. I constantly beat myself up. I was in, in social situations, you know, I would if I was meeting strangers, I would say to myself, oh, what's the point in even talking because they're not going to like me anyway, which is completely irrational. Mm-hmm. You know, I would try and reassure myself that uh, that I am good enough and everything is OK, you know, and I I'd, I'd try my best
1: to do that. <laughs> yeah, but like yeah, it's, um, but yeah. it's so exceptionally hard speaking as a parent here. To see it, I'd imagine. I thankfully I don't have the the problem with my son. <laughs> quite mm. the opposite. <laughs> okay, gotta tone him down. Fair enough. Yeah, gotta rein him in. <laughs> tone it in. <laughs> down. Fair but enough. I'd imagine there's quite a few parents at a loss that they. That you hear parents say it all the time. I'm oh, sure he he doesn't listen to me, and that I'm sure there were people in your life saying recognizing this shyness, because that's how it presents itself in, to the external world, is this huge shyness on your part, Steve. We demoed MC on the other week. Same exact story, absolutely debilitated by this shyness where he couldn't even look people in the eye. Was that, mm. like, am I describing the same kind of shyness? Like, how did your shyness present itself?
0: Yeah, I I couldn't really look people in the eye. Like I was I had a I had a couple of great friends and I was kind of comfortable around them.
1: Mm.
0: But if I was like walking in a shopping center or something like that, I'd I'd be trying to keep my head down, not make eye contact with anybody and just try and keep myself to myself. I I was I was painfully shy, I suppose is the way to put it. But uh, you know, it took me years to realise that it was kind of the, it, it was anxiety. You know, it wasn't just shyness. Um, mm. And obviously, I ha- ended up having a panic attack later on in life, and then that kind of introduced me to a whole different side of of <laughs> of uh, anxiety. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I was painfully shy.
1: Your pa- your parents took the uh, approach of getting you into a stage school, which sometimes now, obviously, your situation is a little bit different to the one that I'm going to talk about here. But Sometimes that is the Irish parent answer. It's not just Irish. I mean, I think across the world, people think, sure, get him up on a stage there and that'll knock the <laughs> nerves out of him. <laughs> and in so many ways, it doesn't help because what it does is it goes it says, oh, he's very, very practiced at getting on these stages, but then socially the difficulties remain. But Jeepers, he put on a great Christmas show, didn't he? Uh, <laughs> a great, great Jesus. And then they can say to each other in the audience, wow, that kid used to be so shy, not realising that the second he's off stage, he's back in his box. Were your parents yeah. obviously aware of the singing ability early on? Were they consciously and did they talk to you about the stage school decision as being some method to bring you out from yourself?
0: I actually asked my mom that question when I was writing the book and she said, yeah, she said she sent myself and my little sister as well, who was quite shy to stage school to try and bring us out of our shells, you know, because we were very, very quiet, as, as I said. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it did help a little bit on the stage, <laughs> but <laughs> not not off the stage. But look, that's what they were trying to do. They were, tr- you know, their hearts were in the right place. They were trying to mm. uh, help me kind of be more confident.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was their jigsaw, but, yeah. you know, like, like yeah. I said, the jigsaw.ie thing exactly. is all resources for parents, for young people. But back then they had... The stage school, the stage (laughs) school, and uh, you know, you obviously won some big roles, including uh, Pokemon. Yeah. Oh dear. Uh, The role of Pikachu in in a parade. Uh, But unbelievable! Like er, er, early on, they recognised the talent. (laughs) Let's get this boy (laughs) into uh, into a gigantic suit. Do
0: you know? Do you know? My dad said the other day about this Pokemon thing. I, I got a call from somebody in the stage school saying, hey, do you want to do something for Pokemon? And I was thrilled. I was like, oh my God, amazing. Cause I, I had never been asked to do anything. I had never gotten a part in anything at this mm. stage. So it was kind of my first, the first thing for me. And I loved Pokemon. I was I was obsessed with it. So um, I went along and they ended up putting me in this big, huge costume. Like it was an adult size Pikachu costume. And um, <laughs> my dad said the other day, he remembers watching me and he just felt so bad for me because I was struggling to <laughs> to stay standing. And I was kind of wobbling. Is he going to fall? Is he going to fall? Whoa, you know, like to each side left and right. And uh, then when I eventually w- like walked in the parade, when the parade was over, I took it off. My dad helped me and I was... Sweating like as if I jumped into a swimming pool, it was quite tough, you know. But um, <laughs> yeah, but I, I, but you I know, mean, I was ch- I
1: was chuffed
0: to be asked to do it, and uh,
1: it was sure, uh, I, it was a weird and one. And look, it's uh, yeah, I, I'm kidding around because obviously, you know, you do you do get parts out of it, and there, you know, there are a bit parts in Fair City and the Mrs. Brown's Boys uh, movie yeah. and stuff. But they mention a falling down thing, and one thing that it's only a short part of the book, but you mentioned falling downstairs a lot as, as a kid. That's a scary thing because, you know, essentially you could have died in any one of these falls. What do you remember of though, that? And, you know, surely I know you were pulling the bars off your cot to escape into uh-huh. the street. And, you know, there was no social anxiety at that point. You just wanted yeah. out in the world. But like... You clearly don't remember any of this. This is all relayed to you.
0: Yeah, it it was relayed to me by my parents like growing up. And there are pictures and stuff like that. Like I I have a scar on my head uh, from falling down the stairs as a kid. Like I, I fell down and then my parents took me to the doctors and then I got like stitches and then as soon as I got back, I fell down again. (laughs) <laughs> so, oh But they, they they said I was, as a really young kid, I it was just really hard to keep an eye on me. I was like, you know, you'd look away for two seconds and I'm gone. So it was a constant thing for them. Uh, but it was only when I was super, super young. Like I think I was two uh, when I fell down the stairs possibly for the first time, which is very young and very dangerous, I know. But fortunately I was, I was okay.
1: Yeah, um, I, joke, I, mean,
0: I joke, I joke, I jokingly kind of describe it as, you know, I banged my head a few times. Maybe that describes a lot. Uh, some stuff, yeah. <laughs> my friend, my friends would understand that. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> um,
1: yeah. um. you know, this obviously stair gates weren't a thing uh, then. Similarly to uh, the lack of jigsaw at the time, there's. You know, it's just a different it's a different time where behaviors like the ones you're showing early on are, as you say, ultimately going to produce this panic attack, which you've spoken about in different interviews. I'm always really conscious not to cover stuff that you've already talked about, but this is a big fork in the road for you in so many ways, because it is the first time that. Anxiety is explained to you that what's taken place in your body in that moment isn't physical or doesn't relate specifically to a a heart attack, a blood pressure issue, which, you know, you and countless others have, you know, been led to believe. I mean, it's it's your body reacting to what's happening in your mind. Can you take us back to that day and Maybe if somebody's unclear as to whether they've had a panic attack or not, kind of help them understand what's taking place in those moments.
0: Yeah, well, I was I was 20 years of age and I was in town with uh, my ex-girlfriend. Well, a girlfriend at the time, and we were walking around Temple Bar. We went to get some food and um, I sat down. And I was eating, whatever, just having food. But all of a sudden something came over me. So she didn't say anything.
1: It just came over you.
0: Yeah, no, she didn't say anything. Like when I look back now, I can see why it happened. You know, there was a lot of things leading up to this and the way I was talking to myself and I, I was repeating my leaving cert and lots of other things. But Anyway, uh, when it did actually happen to me, I had no idea what the hell was going on. And I thought I was dying because of the physical symptoms. I, I was sitting there and I just kind of felt strange and I kind of panicked. And I said to my girlfriend at the time, I need to, I need to get out of here or something. And she kind of just brushed it off. Like, she's like, yeah, cool, whatever. I ran upstairs in the restaurant into the bathroom and... I was just—I was kind of freaking out. Like my heart started racing. Like I felt like it was kind of burst out of my chest. I got kind of dizzy. I couldn't catch my breath. I, I felt like I wasn't getting enough air. I went into the cubicle. I kind of was trying to, like, I don't know, pull myself together. I was telling myself everything's fine. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. I got out of the cubicle, looked in the mirror, I was like, pull, your, pull myself together, trying to pull myself together. But these feelings didn't go away. I went back downstairs to my girlfriend at the time and I just said, I have to leave, I have to go. I think I'm dying. And she was kind of looking at me like, what the hell is going on? You're fine. There's nothing wrong with you. She was really confused and... Was she sympathetic? Uh, just, uh, she was more like cop on type thing you know which as we <laughs> know was I,
1: an irish mental health uh tra- strategy <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: a very well known uh, well age old that.
1: will you will you catch <laughs> <Yeah>. yourself on <laughs> that was her, yeah. her school of thought
0: yeah but i stepped outside and then i just I, I still had these palpitations is what you call them heart palpitations my heart was racing i started to get dizzy struggling to catch my breath In my head, I said, I'm dying. I'm having a heart attack because these physical symptoms were so overpowering. And I had never heard the word anxiety before up to this point. And I suppose because of the physical symptoms I was feeling, I figured there has to be something physically wrong with me. This is really, really strange and really worrying. So I ended up running around Dublin trying to get into different doctors' offices. And most of them, wouldn't see me but I was like banging on the windows going please help me I'm dying because I thought I was dying so I understand why they wouldn't let me in because they're probably like what the hell is going this guy is Mm. I don't know he's lost he's lost it yeah but eventually I did get to a doctor and thinking back now he must have had an experience himself of panic attacks because he saw he sought for what it was. He looked at me and straight away he just knew what was going on. And he calmed me down and brought me into his uh, office and just explained to me that it was anxiety and that it's not physical, it's in my head. I need to look after myself
1: and stop stressing out, Or I suppose is the way he put it. Now, when he says that, I mean... Uh... To some people who first get that kind of chat, it's the same as your girlfriend at the time going, there's nothing wrong with you, will you relax? And that some people can feel a bit dismissed in that moment, not realizing that actually he's helping you. I mean, anxiety is the answer to what's going on. But in, in the moment, you must be thinking, Am I going to have another one of these? And this doctor saying mm. I need to relax and uh, that this is this anxiety. <laughs> it, it's, it's not going to help you feel like you're not ca- dying <laughs> the next yeah. time this occurs. I mean, uh, I think that sometimes when you've been on and Ray Darcy and things talking about this, that the shorter interviews, they're looking for you to go. And that was that then. And now I knew I had anxiety and my life was about to improve. <laughs> uh, but there's so much more. There's, there's just that, that's the beginning, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, I
0: didn't really know what to think when he said it's not physical, it's in your head. I kind of didn't believe him because these physical symptoms kind of stuck around. Like a- after I did speak to the doctor, I remember going home on the bus and still feeling rattled and Mm. completely drained. And I still had some of the symptoms of anxiety, like, like, like minor panic attack that was kind of just bubbling there. Yeah. Like aftershocks. um, Yeah. Aftershocks. Yeah. And that didn't go away Uh, to the point that I think it was two or three days later, I said to my sister to bring me to the A&E because I still just thought that there was something wrong with me like physically wrong with me. So she took me into A&E and I went through the same thing again, trying to explain what was going on to to the nurse when I eventually got seen. And she said the same thing. She was like, "Ah, oh, you just need to calm down and stop, you know, work on your stress, on how you handle stress and stuff. And uh, I, I felt completely lost, to be honest, because I was like, okay, if this is, If it's physical, that's one thing. I know how to fix that. But if it's in my head, how the hell am I going to fix that? I had no idea. Mm -hmm. Um, So I ended up going on forums and stuff. And there was a couple of like forums about anxiety, people talking about their experiences and stuff like that. And I just kind of decided to myself like uh, that it was in my head, I was going to trust the doctors. I'm, I'm not a doctor, so they know best. And I kind of accepted it for what it was, but I, I kind of bottled it up and ran away from it. And I never really did much to kind of tackle it or get my head around it. Other than running, I ran a lot. I started running, which did help a lot. I ran most nights. But it took me years. Like I and I, I escaped into music and I started writing songs.
1: So there you have it, that's your first half of my conversation with Steve Garrigan. What a sound man he is. As I said, you don't want to miss the second half of this interview over on patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad. It's about the price of a pint to join up, and you'll get access to all of my interviews going right back to the very start in 2013. That's hundreds of chats. But as I said, the second half of this interview is a lot of fun and we get to go much deeper. Talk about the role of luck in Codaline's success and in any band's success. And also, there's a brilliant story about Tony Hawk and Steve getting to meet his hero and the absolutely mortifying experience that resulted. And maybe my favorite bit of the second half of this, and Codaline fans will love this, is uh, Steve explaining how songwriting works and whether heartbreak is, in fact, essential or non-essential to writing your best work. You'll love it. It's over on Patreon.com forward slash Abroad. Brian Connolly's on sound. John Maher does the extra research. And Tina and Mikey make it all possible. I'll talk to you on Tuesday when Sonia Sullivan is back reporting from Nike HQ in Oregon. There's so much more coming next week, including Richard Chambers next Sunday.